Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I am joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yurashami. So David, here we go again. COVID-19, the gift from China that just keeps on giving. <laughs> We're seeing these uh, mask mandates are now rearing their ugly heads once again. And uh, now we're seeing vaccine mandates, and these are quite troubling. You know, I've been receiving quite a few phone calls, text messages, emails from concerned people around the country about these uh, about these mandates. And and most particularly, I'm you know here uh, right outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the University of Michigan, one of the obviously one of the largest universities in the in the country, certainly uh, hires a lot of people here in Michigan. Um, they've just instituted a vaccine mandate, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends and and um, you know acquaintances and so forth, are are quite concerned about these, and uh, and they're rightfully concerned. You know, leaving aside the uh, the health issues associated with forcing an injection of what is an experimental vaccine. I'm sorry, it's experimental. Um, it was only it has not been FDA approved. It only has emergency use authorization from the FDA. We have no clue. As to the long, as the as to the midterm effects, leave alone the uh, the long term effects, and so a lot of people are concerned about it, you know, and I and I share their concerns, um, and and on the medical side, but perhaps more important, where my concerns have always been, with these COVID restrictions, the mask mandates, um, these stay at home orders, these uh, you know these these imposed quarantines this uh, Orwellian contact tracing programs. You know, we have a lawsuit in Pennsylvania challenging their mask mandate, their vaccine policy, and their, um, their contact tracing program. And, and it's, to me, it's, my concern isn't about the health issues. My concern is about our fundamental freedoms, right? We've, we've lost these freedoms as, uh, as American citizens. You know, and, and the left is fond of saying that they don't let a good crisis go to waste, and they're certainly not letting this crisis go to waste. You know, they are, and, and quite frankly, I think they are promoting fear uh, so that they can retain the power that they've, that they've grabbed during this, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, and, you know, while we do not give formal legal advice uh, during these podcasts, I think for obvious reasons, hopefully people listening understand that, that we don't have an attorney-client relationship with anybody who happens to tune into a, uh, to a podcast, I do want to uh, address some of the legal issues. Uh, raised by these mandates, in particular, the, the vaccine mandate. Uh, but before getting to the details of that, I want to welcome my colleague, David Yurashami, and get some of his, uh, the, get the, uh, his initial thoughts on, on these issues. David. Hi, Rob, and uh, certainly uh, hello to all our listeners. You know, the, the first thing you mentioned, uh, the, the Wuhan lab and, uh, you know, the gift that just keeps on giving. We have just this week seen the um, Republican minority report out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, issued by Mike McCall, the senior Republican on the committee. And again, you got to juxtapose the whole who has created this worldwide catastrophe of COVID-19 pandemic. And then as big a catastrophe, the government takeover of our lives, um, you would think that this would be a central focus of every single government and every person in government, except maybe China, which is doing all it can to cover it up. We have had the congressional hearings on ongoing on January 6th. Um, we've had media focus on it. But the source of the COVID-19 has been studiously avoided by Democrats, by many Republicans, by administrations, certainly this one, um, and by the media um, entirely. But what do we see? We've talked previously about the dots. Well, the M Republican Minority Report has exposed even more intelligence, which shows that as the head of the intelligence agencies under the Trump administration said, he's of the view that based upon the top secret and secret 
information that he saw while he served in that position. His name escapes me. I apologize. But he said it's not just a probable likelihood that the COVID-19 was being studied at the Wuhan lab and it escaped, but almost a certainty. And the kinds of information you see that um, there were uh, there was an athletic event and, and people from the Wuhan lab were traveling um, back and forth. So the question about how did this thing spread outside of Wuhan so quickly? Well, it's, they answered that. The, the Chinese lab and the government ordered um, an overhaul of the ventilation system of the lab. You see satellite pictures of enormous amount of work being done. They deleted from their website, the um, work that they were doing on viruses that night, same time, this all occurred at the same time. And it was much earlier than we thought, than the latter part of, of 2019. Um, and so they knew about it. They were responding and they were doing a cover-up where they were literally deleting databases and have not reappeared. So. Um, even even the call for contractors that was on like the finance department of the Chinese Communist Party or the Treasury, whatever it was, wherever they post these requests for bids, that disappeared. So what we see are so many dots that connect this circumstantial evidence that something happened there. Now, I'm going to go even further, which I wasn't prepared to do when we first started this podcast. But this virus is mutating. Now, all viruses mutate, but this thing is mutating in ways that is leaving virologists scratching their head. And um, we, it, it just is, continues to, as it were, increase in, in, its, in its potential for infecting others. Whether it's more deadly or not, we still don't have the data. But... Um, the likelihood that this was actually an engineered virus by the Chinese military is growing less speculative and less speculative as the days go on and the data comes in. But what has to shock American citizens is the fact that our government, other than a handful of Republicans, our government is ignoring the central question of the day. Who did this to the world? Who did this to us? And how? what is the likelihood it's going to happen again tomorrow or the next day? And if it was an engineered virus, then the Chinese government knows more about this virus than we do. Now, the fact is, is that, you know, the, the Chinese shot themselves in the foot as well, because we see stories this week about the fact that China is shutting down entire cities because the virus is growing again in China. But that's not surprising. The Chinese Communist Party sacrifices its citizens like sheep all the time. So um, that's not evidence that it was an accident from a natural virus. It could very well have been a militarily engineered virus that then escaped, or it could be that it was let out. But I'll accept the accident, but I'm not going to accept the accident that it was a natural virus they were just looking at versus trying to engineer with gain of function to be more infectious and more deadly. That is the, the, the more likely scenario. Yeah, when you think about the, the devastating effects that this uh, virus has had, you know, uh, globally. I mean, this thing is you know, like reaching, you know, World War Three type uh, type potential. And it's almost like we don't even care. You know, we we just had Pearl Harbor attacked uh, to a magnitude of you know like a million, and nobody's like, oh, who cares who who uh, who was responsible for this, uh, you know, for this deadly attack on uh, you know on our shores. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's shocking to me. And at the same time, you hear, you know, these knuckleheads like the Attorney General and Pelosi claiming that January 6th is, you know, the biggest threat, 
you know, to our, uh, you know, to our existence as a country. I mean, just to even juxtapose those two things, it's, it's laughable, but again, it's a, it's a serious matter because we have tyrants in positions of power who, uh, if they really cared about the American people and, and protecting the American people and what their job is as government officials, first of all, to provide security for the people, they wouldn't be imposing all these stupid little silly mandates and restrictions upon us, not based on science, but just based on their desire to control our lives. They would have looked into what's the source of this thing so it doesn't happen again and find a way to, to uh, you know, to, to limit it better than what, uh, than, what they've, uh, than what they've done instead of just imposing upon all our freedoms. So with that, I want to, uh, I want to talk about these vaccine mandates because this is, uh, these are getting, you know, finding more and more prevalent. Uh, I want to v- review some of the kind of fundamental legal issues that are presented by these mandates. And, and the very first one, it's an issue we talked about before, and it's, you know, it's constitutional law 101. Um, it's something that I think people misunderstand, you know, quite often. There's a difference between a private actor imposing upon you and the government imposing upon you. The, the Constitution and certainly the Bill of Rights of the Constitution, your right to freedom of speech, your right to free exercise of religion, um, your right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures and all the other protections, those are a break on the power of government. They're not a break on the power of private actors. Now, there might be other statutes or, or torts, for example. I mean, like, you know, a, a private entity can't, uh, you know, imprison you, as it were. There's a tort called false imprisonment. Or they can't, uh, you know, harm you in some ways, a tort, you know, called battery. Um, but, there's, but you don't have constitutional protections versus a private actor. So, for example, you want to, you know, pass out literature at the uh, entranceway to Walmart on their private sidewalk. And Walmart says, no, you can't. You can't. You're a trespasser. You don't have a First Amendment right to, uh, to you know, engage in speech activity on, uh, on private property. However, with the government, there is state action. So when the government gets involved, when the government issues a mandate, a vaccine mandate, for example, it triggers constitutional protections. So like for here in Michigan, we have a, there's a local Catholic hospital, sadly to say, that's imposing the mandate upon its, uh, you know, employee, its employees, uh, St. Joseph's Hospital and uh, here in, in Ann Arbor. Well, it's a private entity. You don't have, if you work at St. Joe's, you don't have constitutional protections vis-a-vis St. Joe's. University of Michigan just announced that it's imposing a vaccine mandate. University of Michigan is a government entity. It's a state school. Unlike, for example, Notre Dame would be a private school. Um, University of Michigan is a state school. So mandates that are imposed by state actors, such as University of Michigan, do trigger constitutional protections. Now, if you're a private entity and you're a, pri- you know, a private employee of a private entity, it doesn't mean that you're without any protections whatsoever. I mean, you might have a contract with your, either if you're part of a union, there might be a collective bargaining agreement, part of that contract or that agreement might uh, prohibit the uh, in, enforced vaccines. I've actually heard that, and, and it, it might be potentially an issue in, in a case that we might be getting involved in. Um, so you could have some, some contract claims based on that. There's Title VII. Title VII allows, uh, provides for religious accommodations if you have a religious objection. Um, there's the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which provides for accommodations based on, fit, based on for medical reasons. But typically, and, and those, are, those are generally issues that you should, uh, if you have a concern, you work for a private, uh, a, a private employer, you should seek advice from somebody who does employment law. Because that's typically the people involved with Title VII, with ADA, with contract claims, collective bargaining, and, and that sort of thing. So those are employment claims. One thing to bear in mind, too, that like Title VII doesn't necessarily give you an exemption. It might give you a reasonable accommodation. And that's balanced against the interests and rights of your employer. So, for example, you might get a um, you might get a vaccine exemption, but that might require you to you know wear a mask the entire time you're there and get tested once a week, right? That's the that's the accommodation that the uh, that the gov- that the that the uh, Title VII might impose. So it's not going to be a straight up exemption. Whereas, for example, if you had a constitutional claim and the mandate was found to be unlawful under either due process clause or free exercise clause, um, the, the, the mandate itself might be struck down altogether. So typically in the, with the Title VII 
um, and probably similarly with the ADA, there's, there's going to be a, an accommodation that you might be able to get, uh, not necessarily uh, an, ex an exemption. But again, those are typically, and there, there might be state law, depending what state you're in, there, there's typically um, state counterparts to the ADA, state counterparts to Title VII that provide some um, protections, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So if you have, if you're have being, you know, faced with a vaccine mandate that you have objections to, and uh, you have a private employer, whether it be a private university um, or a private hospital or a private business, you should seek the advice from somebody who does employment law and ask about Title VII, the ADA, employment contract issues. Uh, many people are employees at will. They're not, they don't have contracts. But those are the types of things that you need to, um, that you need to look at. So for government actions, like we saw recently in uh, Indiana University, Indiana University, IU, is a state academic institution. It's not a private institution like Notre Dame, for example, or Harvard or Yale or any of these other, you know, Ivy League schools, which are typically private schools, most of them. Uh, so because it's a state entity, its actions are generally state actions subject to constitutional challenge. And in Indiana University, there were several students that filed a, civil, a federal civil rights lawsuit and sought a preliminary injunction to enjoin university's mandate uh, and a preliminary injunction is just that. It's a, it's a preliminary order um, trying to maintain the status quo until the case can be fully litigated. Um, and so you can, with a, uh, with a preliminary injunction, you don't have all the discovery. And I mean, a, a case to go to its merits can take a year or longer. Um, so a preliminary injunction is try to get some relief up front because obviously the mandate is going to go in, in effect relatively soon in Indiana if it's not in effect already. And so they want to get a preliminary injunction. It was denied. It was denied by a Trump-appointed judge. Um, and uh, they immediately appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which sits in Chicago. Here in Michigan, we're in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, where David is in California. They're in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So theoretically, if we sued University of Michigan and we didn't prevail and we appealed, we would go up to the Sixth Circuit and if you have, you know, the Seventh Circuit coming out one way and the Sixth Circuit coming out another way, that's uh, called a circuit split. And those are the types of cases that the Supreme Court typically will take up. And I think, quite, uh, quite frankly, that this is going to have to be a case that the Supreme Court's going to have to resolve. And I'll explain that, um, I'll explain that uh, momentarily. And just by way of kind of procedurally, um, from a legal perspective, the, the pre a preliminary injunction is kind of somewhat unique um, because Typically, to be able to appeal a case, you have to have a final ruling, a final judgment. A preliminary injunction is not that. It is a preliminary ruling. But there is a provision under federal law, a statute, that, that allows for an interlocutory appeal as a matter of right. Interlocutory means that it's not a final order. It's a preliminary or intermediate order that doesn't rule on the final merits. But because of the importance of, of getting a preliminary injunction, um, you can appeal that as a matter of right immediately. In Indiana University, the, the challenges did appeal the adverse ruling by the, by the district court judge. And they also sought, because even it takes time for a preliminary injunction to be fully briefed and argued in an appellate court. The, um, and for example, I've, I've got a, a hearing on my preliminary injunction uh, appeal in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit in our case in Pennsylvania challenging the mask mandate and their contact tracing program. That's going to be in September. And this is a case that we had our hearing on preliminary injunction last year. So a, a, an appeal of, an, of a preliminary injunction can still take almost up to a year to get through. So they filed what was called an, a, a, an emergency injunction in the second Seventh Circuit pending appeal, if you're following. So they sought emergency immediate relief. And that was just recently denied. I think it was August 2nd by, um, by Judge Easterbrook. And I'm going to have David explain some of the details of, of that but I, I think this is kind of interesting. Our, our good friend, Andy McCarthy, we mentioned him many times. He, uh, when, the, when the Trump judge denied the preliminary injunction, he, uh, he did a kind of a summarize the reasoning of the judge. And I just want to, I want to read that to you because I think it's an, important to hear this. And, and one of the things that, uh, that are brought, that's brought up is this case, uh, Jacobson, the Jacobson case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which upheld a mandatory vaccine policy of Massachusetts for smallpox, a 1905 case, 1905. That's, that's in, important, uh, as I'll explain in a, in a minute. 
But what's interesting there, unlike Indiana University or any of these other, you know, em employers, government employers, there there was, you know, there was no exemptions, right? If you if you didn't um, if you didn't get the vaccine, you were fined, you were, you were penalized, uh, straight up, and that's something that Judge Easterbrook um, uh, points out. But let me just this is something that Andy McCarthy wrote. Uh, few days back after the, uh, the ruling had come out. He said, in finding that the university had a wide berth to require vaccinations, judge, and I think it's pronounced Lighty, or like, it's L-E-I-C-H-T-Y, I have no idea how to pronounce the judge's name, relied heavily on the US Supreme Court's 1905 decision in Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which upheld a smallpox vaccine mandate under which those who refused to comply were fined $5, which is about $140 in today's dollars, um, finding that states have a critical interest in protecting the public from potentially deadly infectious diseases. In the ensuing decades, Jacobson has been relied on several times by higher courts, including the Supreme Court, to justify vaccine requirements and other public health mandates. Lighty, the judge, conceded that a number of prominent jurists, including Supreme Court Justices Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch, have suggested that too much weight has been given to Jacobson and caution that it should not be considered the last word on state power to infringe on individual rights. As if to prove this very point, the Supreme Court late last year ruled in Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo that New York's severe coronavirus restrictions on attendance at religious services violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause. The state had rationalized its restrictions as necessary to combat the spread of COVID-19. Nevertheless, Judge Lighty distinguished Cuomo from Jacobson because as the court explained in the former, free exercise is unquestionably a fundamental right and therefore New York had a higher burden, which it failed to meet, to justify restrictions and importantly, to refrain from discriminating against religious institutions by imposing burdens more onerous than it opposes on commercial and other activities. In deciding Cuomo, the court did not overrule Jacobson. Lighty thus reasoned, the judge, that the two precedents can coexist because they apply to different situations implicating different rights. Given that Jacobson is still the law with respect to the narrow situation addresses, namely a vaccination requirement to halt the spread of an infectious disease, albeit one considerably more deadly than COVID-19, that being the smallpox, likely as a lower court judge was bound to follow it. So that was Andy's, uh, and it was, I think it was a good summation of, of what the judge, how the judge held and how he ruled um, in the, at the lower court. And as I mentioned, uh, Judge Easterbrook uh, wrote the opinion on the denying the motion for an injunction pending appeal. David, I'm going to turn to you. Can you just describe to our listeners, viewers, what uh, Judge Easterbrook from the Seventh Circuit said uh, about this case and denying the request for uh, an injunction pending appeal? Okay, so I, you know, to really understand it in any contextual um, way that makes sense. Um, I'll just briefly, and Rob touched upon it in his very good discussion on the constitutional questions. If you're going to impose a health protocol, you know, mask mandate, closing down a business, that type of thing, no public demonstrations, that's going to affect a First Amendment right um, or a Second Amendment right or a Fourth Amendment, a clear right articulated in the Bill of Rights, um, then you're going to have to satisfy the higher standards that were developed, by the way, long after Jacobson in 1902 was developed. 1905, right? yeah. 1905. I mean, we, we hadn't even really begun the incorporation process. Remember, the Bill of Rights was against the states and it was incorporated into um, yeah, it was against the federal government. Federal government. against the states against of the 14th. States, right. yeah. So, um, and it, that the Supreme Court incorporated against the states piecemeal. It wasn't like, okay, they're all coming in now. It was one amendment and then another amendment. And even within amendment, like the First Amendment, there's speech, there's religious freedom. So it, it's kind of complicated. It's the first thing you learn when you go to law school when constitutional law or one of the first things. Um, but those rights require a much higher level. We've talked about it here, strict scrutiny in many cases. Um, if you're going to make a claim that doesn't affect a religious institution and your ability to go into the church or the synagogue to pray, 
or it isn't going to affect your ability for a public demonstration, um, which we brought, Rob and I brought lawsuits in, in several states, Michigan, New York, Philadelphia, on these grounds, Pennsylvania rather. Um, and many of the, the trial courts relied upon Jacobson, but Jacobson had nothing to do with those. Jacobson was a claim by a man who was being criminally charged, he's fined, um, because he didn't want a vaccine. Um, and he was claiming a substantive due process right. Now, due process, as you can imagine, provides for certain procedural rights. Things need to be fair. The process needs to be fair. You have to know what the charges are against you. You have to be able to call witnesses. You have to be present during trial. These are all the procedures that have to be procedurally fair. And that's a due process procedural right. But there are rights that have been recognized that are substantive due process rights so that um, you have the right to the integrity of your body. And while it might not fit into any express right, it's a substantive due process right. Now, the protection afforded by the Supreme Court in interpreting substantive due process rights is a much lower level than the express liberties that we have, freedom of speech and religion. So Jacobson dealt with this lower level. Now, what's interesting, when we first brought these claims for religious freedom, for free speech against the COVID mandates, the courts relied on Jacobson blindly and said, well, Jacobson said it just has to be necessary and it's a crisis and you do whatever you want to do because courts aren't a very good place to, to impose protocol, uh, analyze medical protocols. The Supreme Court, through Alito, and in the the um, Cuomo Roman Catholic diocese case, diocese case against Cuomo, that case made clear that Jacobson has a limited authority here because it doesn't mean we throw out all the constitutional analysis that has occurred after Jacobson was decided in 1905. No, if you're dealing with one of the other rights, you apply it. But if you're going to argue a straight up substantive due process, Jacobson's going to carry more weight. And that's what happened in the Indiana case. Um, Judge Easterbrook. Can, who can I just drop a, just drop a footnote real fast on this, on the reliance on Jacobson? It's kind of interesting because where Jacobson really started gathering ground is when Chief Justice Roberts, uh, before the makeup of the court had shifted and he was he was he uh, had the, the support of the liberal justices, uh, struck down one of California's uh, uh, restrictions and citing Jacobson. And after that, refused to strike up, it. Refused to strike down. Oh, it's, excuse me. Right, upheld the restriction. Refused to strike down and relied on Jacobson. That's when we started seeing Jacobson, Jacobson all day long. And then when the makeup of the court shifted, and Alito and Gorsuch and Thomas and these guys, like, look, Jacobson has, Jacobson doesn't restrict this. It's not some super, you know, super authority. And they, and they started winning in the Supreme Court uh, challenges to these restrictions. And all of a sudden, Rob's like, well, that's not what I really meant, that Jacobson was, you know, Jacobson had that much weight. Yeah, it was Chief Justice Roberts that really uh, injected uh, life into Jacobson, into these more recent uh, cases. And it's, and it's taken the more conservative justice on the court to drag him over to the correct side of this to, uh, to start seeing some, um, you know, some success. And, and it's likely going to take a case up to the Supreme Court to get this Jacobson issue resolved with regard to the vaccine. So go ahead, David. And, and, and to underscore that very good point, Rob, to show you when, when Chief Justice Roberts says, well, the duty of a, of a judge and certainly at the Supreme Court is just be an umpire and call balls and strikes on what the law is. And we're not political animals. Well, they're not only political animals, they're disingenuous ones. Robertson's um, Alito wrote a concurring opinion, and that's and he said, you know, this whole reliance on Jacobson is patently misplaced. And he made the strongest possible argument you could make, and he was obviously correct. So Robertson, who had previously relied on Jacobson, as Rob said, writes his own little piece to that opinion, his own little concurrence or whatever it was. I don't remember concurrence or dissenting. I don't know which side he voted on. But he said, no, 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 you're making, 
Yeah, you're, you're making too big a deal out of what I said about Jacobson. No, he wasn't. He was quoting you. Yeah. And, and instead of Robertson being honest as a judge, calling balls and strikes, saying, look, I made a bad call. We now have a replay <laughs> video, and it's clear with Alito's replay video that I was wrong. He should have admitted, but he, he wouldn't even have the integrity and the honesty to admit he was wrong. Now, of all, he, of all the justices, Roberts is the one that puts his finger up in the wind, right? We saw that with Obamacare was like the was the you right. know the quintessential example. But right. the mandate upheld as, as a as a taxing power when that was clearly yeah. impossible. Yeah. So, um, except that for the Anti Injunction uh, Act, it's not a tax, right? Yeah, and it was it was internally inconsistent as opposed to in addition just being totally wrong. But yeah, well, well, so. What did East, Easterbrook was on the panel and Easterbrook um, was the senior judge and he's considered an intellectual heavyweight. Now, Rob and I will tell you he's in, he's just an arrogant bully, but he's uh, smart, a, arrogant bully. Yeah, he's smart. There's no question. And he and he's articulate. He writes beautiful opinions, you know, kind of scalial like who could also write a beautiful, sharp witted opinion. And. Um, anyone who's argued before Easterbrook, and I have not had that privilege, uh, knows, though, that uh, if you get up there and, and he's on the other side of the issue, whatever you're not prepared to deal with, he's going to make you suffer for it. So his opinion was, look, this is all Jacobson. It's a substantive due process claim. And yes, you do have the integrity of your body, just like you have the integrity of your property it can't be taken away uh, willy nilly. However, the fact is, is that the university and these were students, so we didn't have, we don't have the issue of faculty and employees and so forth and collective bargaining agreements and what have you. These are students. And the fact is, is um, the, the university gave a religious and medical accommodation avenue. So um, that eliminates any of those kind of constitutional claims free exercise religious claim. They give you a religious accommodation and that wasn't part of this case. And if you, um, uh, this would actually hurt your health, the vaccine, you're given a medical accommodation, wasn't part of the case. So we're talking about people who don't fit into an accommodation, religious or medical, and they just don't wanna have their bodies invaded by this vaccine. And he says, if that's your argument under Jacobson, you lose. And you lose because, see, Jacobson required every individual in the state to be vaccinated and if not be subject to criminal fine. This case, it's not everybody in the state. It's just students who want to go to Indiana University. And so you have lots of alternatives to begin with, he argues. You can go to a different university. Um, you don't have to go to this university. And number two, um, the argument that there are requiring you to, as it were, surrender your body to the vaccine. Well, they require you to surrender $11,000 in tuition. That's your property. They can't take your money without reason. There's no problem. Uh, up until now, the university, this university and other universities require verification that you've you know, had your vaccines or that you take vaccines. That's been ongoing and no one's made a complaint about that. Um, and so if your argument is simply substantive due process, the integrity of your body, you should not be forced to have a vaccine. You have other options and, um, uh, you go somewhere else, take a semester off, travel and see Europe. That was his rather flippant analysis of Jacobson. Yeah. And, and when you think about how you talk about being flippant, right? A kid's been going there for three years. He's got loans like crazy, you know, over, over these three years. He's trying to finish up with his last semester to get his degree. And you tell him, you know, just go to another school. It's easy for you to say. How is that not, an, you know, it, to me, that's a far greater burden than having to pay whatever, you know, in today's dollars. Or he's an in-state Michigan student. He has in-state tuition levels. He yeah. lives there. He can't afford to go to find some state because it's all of them going to be all the Michigan universities. In well, that's Indiana. That one's Indiana University. Indiana, right? I'm yeah. sorry. Right. So, you know, he can't afford or she to, to leave the state and can't afford a private university or college that might not require it. 
although they're going to be forced into it. And by the way, they're going to be forced into it very soon because the Biden administration is going to make it a requirement that if you want any of our federal funds, yeah. you have to have a vaccine mandate. You can bet your bottom dollar that's on its way. And, and, and quite frankly, um, if it came from the federal government, that would actually be even an easier case because then you would have a RIFRA, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act statutory claim against any federal actors. That's the other thing to bear in mind. But, that's just, on the relig- but there you have to have that religious argument, right? So if, if your only argument is the integrity of the human body and my, my freedom, yeah. you're going to be on Jacobson very thin ice. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've addressed this quite frequently in, in our briefs. I think, quite frankly, I think um, Easterbrook's wrong. Uh, for reasons that, uh, you know, that for the reasons why Jacobson hasn't been applied in those other situations, I think for the same reasons, it's wrong to apply it the way they're applying it here. But again, I think that's going to take the U.S. Supreme Court to have to to have to work this out. This is what this is what uh, Justice Gorsuch said in his concurring opinion in that Roman Catholic diocese case we've been referring to. He said, quote, Jacobson didn't seek to depart from normal legal rules during a pandemic and it supplies no precedent for doing so, end quote. That's, that's pretty strong. And mm-hmm. in this, the tandem versus Newsom, which is one of the most recent cases, the Supreme Court struck down the, um, uh, the restrictions on the, the religious, uh, on churches and things that Newsom put in place in California, the, the court applied straight up uh, constitutional jurisprudence again, against it. And even in the, uh, another, another case in the Second Circuit said the Jacobson Court itself Specifically noted that even if based on the acknowledged police powers of a state, a public health measure must always yield in case of conflict with any right which the Constitution gives or secures. So what, what Jacobson did, it merely rejected what would now be called a substantive due process challenge, as David mentioned, to a compulsory vaccination requirement. And as David noted also, 1905, this is before the Supreme Court had developed the incorporation doctrine. So it hadn't incorporated as applying against the states, uh, various constitutional pr- provisions, including the first, first Amendment right to freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, and so forth. So none of those are on the table uh, during Jacobson. But even to me, but even more so, the, the Supreme Court's constitutional jurisprudence has developed substantially since Jacobson. For example, at the time of Jacobson, 1905, there was not a 14th Amendment right to privacy as we know it today. Right, the right to privacy was really developed in this case, Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, where the court famously found this right in the penumbras of the emanations of the Bill of Rights. It's almost like a direct quote from, from the case. And I remember every you know, first year law student, including myself, running to the dictionary and I mean, saying, what the heck's a penumbra? <laughs> so looking up the penumbras of the emanation of the Bill of Rights, they created this right to privacy and they held that, that uh, Connecticut couldn't pass a law prohibiting the dispensing or use of birth control to married couples. They grounded this right to privacy and the sanctity of marriage. They called it the noble noble and sacred institution of marriage. Well, in 1972, this noble and sacred institution of marriage got thrown out the, <laughs> thrown out the door um, in Eisenstein versus Baird, Justice Brennan writing the opinion, where there was a law that prohibited the sale of contraception to unmarried couples. And so rather where the right to privacy was moored in the, in the sanctity and nobility of marriage, in 1972, Justice Brennan um, said that it was just a, uh, it, it was the right to bear or beget a child. It didn't matter. It was because after all, a, a, a married couple is just two individuals. So why can't two individuals who are not married also use contraception? And so it's just about the right to bear or beget a child. Is there any surprise? Oh, that was, uh, excuse me, 1971, I believe. Any surprise that in 1972, we had Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court said that the right to privacy includes the right to abortion. Um, and so when you think about how, and, and even Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was decided in 1992, one of the cases that they thought would actually be one of the cases to overturn Roe versus Wade, the court cited Jacobson for the proposition that, quote, a state's interest in the protection of life falls short of justifying any plenary override of individual liberty claims, unquote. So my view is, if you look at the right to privacy, this right to bodily integrity that has developed through the, through the, the, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence well beyond Jacobson in 1905, that this, 
mandate should also be subject to strict scrutiny. And it will fail under strict scrutiny because they have, I mean, just the mere fact that they have exemptions in some places, in some cases, for example, Indiana University, the fact that they have some exemptions shows that it doesn't satisfy strict scrutiny because it can't protect an interest of the highest order if it allows other exemptions that apparently may still cause this same, uh, this same harm or that they have some measures that can uh, mitigate that harm, like wearing a mask or being tested and, and so forth, short of actually mandating the vaccine. So I think it's gonna ultimately take a, uh, a Supreme Court decision on this. Um, I'm hopeful that you know if we do bring a case here in Michigan or have another case working its way up, that uh, either the district court judge or the appellate court judges would recognize that reasoning and would recognize what Gorsuch said and Alito said about Jacobson, that it's not some you know, super precedent that overrides current constitutional jurisprudence and under current constitutional jurisprudence, the right to privacy, the right to bodily integrity should be subject to, uh, subject to strict scrutiny and not just you know, easily dismissed with, oh, you can go to another school or you can do, you know, Easterbrook, right? Easy for him to say, sitting there in his in his uh, chambers as he's pending this uh, this opinion. So there's uh, there's a there's a lot there and a, a lot to chew on. Let me let me just say something, Rob. Here, yeah, because I'm certain the 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 lay audience didn't catch what you just said, and I would doubt that anyone but a fairly sophisticated constitutional lawyer would have caught it. But I think our audience is smarter than that, David. No, 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 because <laughs> I'm going to point out what, what you just said, and I think they would agree with me, but I want to be very clear about it. This is the first time I've heard Rob actually articulate the argument that way. And so I'm impressed, and I, I say that unqualifiedly, because here's what Rob just did. Rob took this right of privacy that the court developed out of nowhere, right? You can argue that there's a privacy right as a kind of substantive due process right, that, or you could argue that it's inherent, there didn't need to be a right, it's inherent in the fact that the government has no authority to invade our integrity, our privacy. But what the government did for birth control, I'm excuse me, what the court did for birth control in the early 70s, and in Roe v. Wade, was to say, we're going to not only find a right of privacy, and it's not going to be something vague in the substantive due process. We're going to find it in these penumbras and what have you. Yeah. Um, and we're going to make it a fundamental right that requires strict scrutiny, which is that highest level of constitutional analysis. It has to be a compelling state interest, and the restriction has to be necessary and narrowly tailored. Rob's taken that and literally used it as a club to say, one second, if that's the case, and that was developed after Jacobson, then just like the incorporation of the First Amendment and, and the other amendments, the Fourth Amendment, what have you, um, as against the states, then this too can be used. And it's no longer going to be just a rational basis test, just Look, if the government can come up under Jacobson and substitute process, the government can come up with a reason. Doesn't have to be the best reason, the most logical reason, just a reason to impose these restrictions on to, to protect public health, then they can do so, as long as it's this health crisis. Now, if in fact, Jacobson is, is subject to what comes after in constitutional analysis, strict scrutiny is applied through the right of privacy. And, and I think that's a brilliant approach to going after this thing. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I think, you know, Roe versus Wade was, was the most atrocious decisions that was ever, but again, that was, but Roe versus Wade was developed from this, this, uh, this right to privacy. The right to abortion was just created out of, out of whole cloth. But if you're gonna say, look, the constitution, uh, you know, the government can't, you know, stop the killing of an innocent human life, but you can't complain about, you know, an experimental vaccine being put in your, I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're at a point of anarchy, which we probably are in the, in the Supreme Court. But the point being, if this is, I mean, I, right now the Supreme Court has a case 
up uh, Dobbs, this Mississippi case, where they're going to where they're going to address the question of whether or not, and this is kind of going a little bit afield, but it's related. Uh, they're addressing the question of whether or not all pre-viability abortions are necessarily unconstitutional. And we just filed a brief on behalf of Priests for Life, uh, making the point, making the argument that the uh, that the Supreme Court should reverse Roe versus Wade because it it was created created out of whole cloth. They created out of whole cloth this idea that an unborn child has no protection whatsoever and is not a person, right? Along the same lines as the Supreme Court when they decided the Dred Scott decision and said that, uh, you know, people of color, black men were not persons under the constitution and thus had no rights. Unfortunately, it took a civil war to fix the Dred Scott decision. I'm hoping this court will fix the Roe v. Wade decision and reverse it because it's an absolute abomination. But certainly if you think about the principles of the right to privacy and, and personal autonomy and bodily integrity, those should apply in the context of the government forcing you, imposing burdens upon you if you don't uh, take this experimental you know, serum into your body. And you have no idea what the midterm or long-term effects of this are going to be. Leaving aside the fact that there's, I think there's uh, ample evidence to show that certainly the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was developed using uh, stem cell lines of aborted fetuses. And there's certainly evidence that these other vaccines were tested using stem cells of aborted fetuses. And I know as a Catholic, that is something that is, is prohibited. I mean, it's, abortion is intrinsically evil. You can never justify it. And so there's a, a measure of cooperation, uh, of, uh, of cooperation with evil that your conscience rightfully can say, hey, this violates my conscience for me to participate in this program that you have because of the way it was, uh, because of the way it was developed. And that should, be, that should be recognized by the government as well, because they're not arbiters of scripture. They can't tell me that my religious belief is, uh, is wrong, because that's not their purview. That's not, they don't have the judicial competency, I think is what the Supreme Court described it as, to judge whether or my, 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 what my conscience is telling me is correct or, uh, right. or not. So there's a lot out there. And, and let me just add one other aspect to this. And I, we've talked about it, as it were, implicitly, and that is, even under the rational basis test, you know, the standard substantive due process, the fact is, as Rob pointed out, we do not know the medium and long-term unintended consequences, the bad outcomes, God forbid, that could arise from this vac these new platform, mRNA platform vaccines. We don't know. The only vaccine out there, by the way, which was developed through inactive or dead um, COVID-19, the standard old way to develop vaccines that we use for smallpox, et cetera, is from China. And anyone who would put anything in, from China in their arms uh, is acting in a fairly reckless way, in my view. Putting that aside, the Johnson & Johnson, the Moderna and the Pfizer, we simply don't know what the long-term effects are or what the medium-term effects are. And if that's the case, how can the government under any rational basis test require us to put our lives or our health at risk? And it's an unknown risk. We just don't know what it is versus what are the risks of bad outcomes? If you get COVID-19, there are, there's no question we've seen them and they can be tragic and awful but it's still a tiny percentage. And then what are the risks for those people who've already been exposed and have natural immunity capability? And we don't know exactly how that stacks up against the vaccine. They're trying to tell us, well, the vaccines are better and they have their theories, but we don't really have the evidence for that. And so even on a rational basis test, can you ask, me and you to sacrifice what could be our health or our lives three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, on that, on the facts that we currently have, I don't think that's rational. I think that it has to be left to the, the only rational choice is for the individual to make that choice. That's yeah, and, the only and, rational. And the thing too that's that's very troubling is the uh, you know there's there's immunity granted here for for um, harms that are going to be caused by these vaccines, right? So even so, what's your you know you you end up suffering greatly from this. The next thing you know, you can't sue because you've they've immunized the uh, 
you know, these, these makers of the vaccines. And I think they may have even extended that, that immunity to those who distribute the, uh, the vaccine. So it, it's just, it's insidious. And then think also when you talk about the, the benefit risk and whether it's a rational basis, we're talking about college students, right? We're talking about the, the youth. I mean, they, these, are the, these are the people that are, are, are not susceptible in, in terms of bad outcomes from the COVID-19. The, the young, healthy have almost a, a you know, natural immunity from it. As I mentioned before, you know, we have, I've been involved in litigation in Pennsylvania. And I know from you know, the, the number of people who died in the age group of zero to 19, granted colleges are you know, a couple of years beyond that, but not by much. The number for, for, for uh, the entire state of Pennsylvania, which I think was 10 million people, is a big goose egg. Zero. Zero. I mean, not even close. And the number of kids that are suffering from drug abuse, suicide, suicide ideation is, is absolutely through the roof. And yet they're, now they're going to just, you know, they're just going to increase that by forcing you. Basically, to me, it's like they're forcing you to accept a battery, right? A battery on the law is an offensive touch. They're forcing you to accept a battery as a condition to go to my, you know, government university. Well, uh, and is, this follow is- the logic here. The students at Indiana University um, alleged that, look, we're between 18 and 39, and we just don't suffer those kind of bad outcomes. And so we don't want to be forced to take a vaccine that we don't know what the bad outcomes are going to be. The trial court, Easterbrook didn't even address these questions. The trial court said, citing a statistic that said, most of the new Delta variant infections are among the age group of 18 to 39. And then you, but then you scratch your head and say, but so what? The fact that they're getting most of the, the, the infections from the new Delta virus, they're not having bad outcomes and they're getting natural immunities as a result. So then the court would say, well, that's true, but the fact that they are asymptomatic or have mild cases of COVID-19 and develop their own natural immunities, they still can carry it for those two weeks and infect people. But so then they tell us, then they tell us, even if you've been vaccinated, you must wear a mask. Why? Because even if you've been vaccinated, you can infect people because yeah. the virus can be in your nostrils and in your mouth and so forth. And the, the vaccine and natural immunity doesn't attack the virus that's in your nostrils or in your, you know, your mouth and your spittle. It only attacks it if it gets into your bloodstream. So if the vaccines can't protect us from transmission and natural immunity can't protect, what's the difference? Why can't these young people who are getting the Delta variant, but are living, you know, surviving it fine and developing natural immunities, why should they be forced to have a vaccine, especially at that age where we don't know, does it affect their ability to have children later? Does it affect um, their health five years from now? These are very real and serious questions. They're simply not being addressed in a rational way. But I, I guarantee you this, if you make these arguments in court, it would take a judge with integrity of soul and intellect, one that we haven't come across yet, and I have yet to see one. Uh, there's been a couple actually that have rendered opinions, but they get overturned immediately on appeal. You just, even by the, the Trump appointees, it would take enormous and just strength of, of, of character to apply real rational thought to these questions. Yeah, I would love to, and this is not possible, but you know, tell this judge, right? This is just Trump judge in Indiana or any other judge is going to rule or Easterbrook. Okay, if this is what you think, then if I get any bad outcome from this vaccine, I want you to pay me $10 million. I want you to be the one personally responsible for the bad outcomes that if something happens to me that you'll take care of my family and my future, pay all my bills and everything else. If you want to, you think it's so easy to pen this opinion and sign off on it and force me to have the vaccine, well, then you be responsible for what the outcomes are. You think any judge would agree to that? Not a chance, right? right. And because it's easy to sit in your, in your chambers 
type up an opinion or dictate opinion and sign off on it than to actually understand that, look, what you're doing is going to have real world consequences, judge. Right. And think about even the statistical analysis, right? So we know that these vaccines are very effective in the short term. We have no idea how many boosters and shots you're going to have to have annually from for ad infinitum. Because mm-hmm. it does look like COVID-19 is going to be around a long time because it mutates extremely efficiently. So um, if, if that's the case, it could be like the influenza bug where you literally have to be vaccinated every year and they have to speculate about what forms of the influenza is going around because there's an infinite, practically an infinite number of forms of influenza. But think about the statistics. So there are bad outcomes. Right? We know that there's blood clotting issues. We know that there's enlarged heart issues. We know that there's um, what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is when the body attacks its own nervous system when it sees a virus, it just goes crazy and then eats you up from inside. It's a deadly, painful, awful disease. Now, the odds of those things happening statistically among the millions of people who've received a vaccine, tiny, less than 1%. But here's the thing, doctors and scientists don't know why certain people have those bad outcomes. They know they have them. They know they are statistically significant and related to these vaccines. In fact, you will see that individuals who have issues with blood clotting, Johnson & Johnson has a warning. Don't take this vaccine if you have those issues. They don't know which individuals, so they don't know how to identify those susceptible individuals to those tiny statistical odds. But guess what? If you are one of those individuals and you don't know it yet, your odds of one of those bad outcomes happening skyrockets. If you're in the population of people who are susceptible to Guillain-Barr syndrome, then the odds of that happening to you are incredibly high. We just don't know who is. So the fact that medical science. David, you just, you just cut out. I think you might be having some uh, internet issues. Your, your image just froze. So I'm not sure if you're able to come uh, to jump back in with us here as you were wrapping up your, your point. But yeah, the, the point is, look, if you're, I mean, it's kind of like you, you, what, you have to play Russian roulette. Right. If you're one of these people, I don't care what is it, if it's a, you know, is it a six chamber gun or is it a, you know, a 15 chamber gun? You put a bullet in one of those 15 chambers, right? If you happen to be one of these people susceptible, you spin the chamber. You're going to pull that trigger, right? Because that's what they ask you to do. They ask you to pull that trigger. I see, Dave, your video is, is back. You look like you're on, on mute, though. You got to put your audio back on. You don't have your audio on. There we go. Yeah, my entire Zoom disappeared. My entire Zoom just disappeared yeah. and rebooted. So just wrap, wrap up your point because I, I, we do have to kind of wrap up here. I do want to, I want to mention an article that I want our listeners viewers to, to check out, but um, do you want to finish your point about the, uh, the susceptibility? I think I pretty much finished it. That is to say, it, it's not irrational to be concerned about the very small risk of a bad outcome in the short term, because we don't know what puts you in that risk population or not. And you could be walking around with one of those comorbidities that put you at great risk. You just don't know. Yeah. And then you compare that to to the data that we do know that, you know, the certain age group and demographics aren't susceptible to COVID-19. So we have more knowledge on that part of it to know who should not have to get the vaccine, then we know who are those who are being troubled by the vaccine itself. So that's a, that's a problem. Well, I, I do wanna wrap it up, but before I do, I want to, there's an article that was written by uh, Cheryl Atkinson, S-H-A-R-Y-L, Atkinson is A-T-T-K-I-S-S-O-N, a investigative journalist. Um, it's titled COVID-19 Natural Immunity Compared to Vaccine-Induced Immunity, The Definitive Summary. It's a very good article. You know, she goes through, she makes, she starts off by making the point that, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham was recently came down with COVID. By the way, he was fully vaccinated, right? And so then the question is, how does, um, this is one of the points she said. She said the Centers for Disease Control insists 
vaccination is still the best course for every eligible American, but many are asking if they have better immunity after they're infected with the virus and recover than if they're vac vaccinated. And she goes on to say, increasingly, the answer with the data appears to be yes. And so this isn't just an, a, you know, your regular old article. It is a summary of studies. She lists in this article numerous studies, like one, from example, of 52,230 employees at the Cleveland Clinic Health System in Ohio. And they, uh, they said individuals who have had COVID-19 infection are unlikely to benefit from COVID-19 vaccinations because their, their natural immunities are better. And there's a, there's a host of studies that she has in here that she cites to. So I recommend you go take, check out this article. I've already posted it up on our uh, American Freedom Law Center Facebook page. So you can, uh, you can find it there. Or you can just do a search for Cheryl Atkinson and the, uh, and the title of this, uh, this article. But it's, I think it's worthwhile looking at. It's one of the issues that I've always have somebody who had COVID seriously. I got the pneumonia, COVID-19 pneumonia, um, and have developed natural immunities. Um, and, and I know that uh, my body was able to successfully fight off the virus. Why? Because I'm sitting here today talking to you during this podcast. And guess what? If my immunities aren't working against COVID-19 and the variants, then neither is your vaccine. But yet they seem to dismiss the fact that people who've had COVID-19, um, that they have any immunities whatsoever. So right. let, me just, let me just say, Rob, that you, know, you, you don't want to rely on a journalist reporting um, on, on the question of natural immunities versus vaccines simply. Um, and you'd want to check her facts. But I, you do want to know, is this a serious investigative journalist? And the answer is, Cheryl Atkinson is. Um, and you can go to her website, you can Google her name. And, and I remember Cheryl Atkinson as one of the the early journalist who really looked at the, the big bank buyout of AIG and the TARP funds um, back in the Bush two days. And she did incredible work, Emmy award-winning journalist. She was um, you know, in the mainstream media as um, a correspondent for CBS News, PBS, CNN. So this is not a lightweight. She has the New York Times bestselling book right now on titled Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Um, and it's essentially a book about um, the, the biases cooked into, baked into modern day journalism and, and why, as a result, the most of the public knows that modern day journalism is fake news, but she's a serious investigative journalist. You don't want to accept what she says simply, but you're not getting it from a flaky, you know, source here. Right. And, and the other point about her article is that she has hyperlinks to all those studies. So she's not just, she's just not commenting on them. She's commenting on them, but she's providing you with the source. So if you don't agree with, and she quotes directly from them, and if you don't agree, you know, thinks the quotes out of context, whatever, you can click on the study and look at it yourself. But it's a very good, uh, best that I've seen, summary of studies dealing with the question of um, natural immunities versus uh, vaccines. So I uh, asked, I think it's uh, worthwhile to, uh, to check out. And again, she's, it's from a very reputable, um, reputable uh, journalist. So, you know, that's all the time we have today. And David, I don't know if you realize, but this is our 20th episode. So, wow. so it's somewhat of a little, a little bit of an anniversary for us. Um, we look forward to our next discussion. We thank everybody for joining us. As you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channel and our podcasts uh, can be found on Spotify and Stitcher. If you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. And I'll throw in another plug uh, again that we are a nonprofit public interest law firm. We're recognized by the IRS as a 501c3 all the legal work that we discuss um, during this show and, and even more, if you go to our website, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org, uh, that you'll see we're doing, we do it pro bono for the good, meaning we don't uh, charge for our legal services. Rather, we have to rely on the generous donations from uh, people like you. So if you'd like to support us, if you like the work we do, and uh, you can go to our website and you can do an online donation safely. And, and every dollar, I, trust me, we have one of the lowest overhead of any public interest law firm Every dollar that we receive 
we will put it to good use and all donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. So thank you again. And as always, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen. Thank you.